0: Beloved, the uh, holy grail of science is the search for the grand unified theory, the grand unified equation. The idea is that uh, when we look at God's creation, we see four fundamental forces. There's gravity, electromagnetism strong nuclear force and weak nuclear force. And the grand unified theory tries to find an equation and people seek, physicists seek to try to find an equation to bring all those together. And it's interesting in my uh, kind of scientific naivety from my background, I always thought that that was just kind of a pure and noble exercise. I didn't realize until later that actually at some level it finds its root in philosophy, in philosophical cir- uh, circles, in philosophy classes, the professor will often talk about the problem, and this is one of the prevailing problems of the multiple problems in philosophy, is the problem, as so stated, of the one and the many. The idea being, in philosophical circles, that the universe is one entity, but it's composed of many parts, and how do those tie together? So one can try to answer that from a scientific perspective, standpoint or one can try to in vain answer that from a philosophical standpoint the interesting thing is when we look at the pages of scripture we know that God is the creator of all these things God gives us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness and gives us whatever answer we need even in one context of addressing the problem or the question of the one and the many beloved please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4 We understand when we look at what God tells us through the writings of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians that in the body of Christ, we are one unified people. We are one unified people. And God wants us to be practicing and cultivating and driving and seeking to strengthen what is already the case. We are already one unified people, and God gives us a command and a responsibility and a privilege to cultivate the unity of what we already are and to make it more real and effective and practical and demonstrable and understood by virtue of our walk with Christ. And that is what he opens up chapter 4 with when paul says i therefore the prisoner of the lord entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called so he wants us to be one people practically and he wants us to be one holy people we are to be a unified front which is really what we see in verses 1 through 16 of chapter 4 and then in chapter and then verse 17 through chapter 5 verse 21 we are to be a purified people as well And what we have in these first 16 verses is a long discourse flowing from the heart of the Apostle Paul of what it means for us to be unified, what it means to have unity amidst our diversity. Beloved, follow along as I read. Our passage this morning is verses 7 through 10. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to read verses 1 through 10, to remind ourselves where we came from before we get into our passage. Verse 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he has ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. Beloved, this is the word of. Of God that has been read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Let us pray that the truth that is contained herein would rest our souls and our hearts in all that we do. Now, What we see here is Paul cannot help himself, even as he's getting to the latter part of the letter where there is a greater emphasis on the exhortation, on the command, on the imperative of how we are to walk based upon the riches of the wealth that we enjoy in Christ. Paul can't help himself but to erupt in great doctrinal statements about who Jesus is and what it means for you and for me. And what we see in these Verses In these four verses is that Jesus is the giver, the victor, and the filler. He is the one who gives, he is the one who conquers, and he is the one who fills. Beloved, people, people will often speak of the gifts of the Spirit. And insofar as we would look at 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 through 11, really the whole chapter, it is the Spirit who distributes the gifts according to His will, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 11. It's interesting, we can go to Romans chapter 12, and see there another list of gifts, and actually it is God the Father who is the one who gives the gifts in Romans 12. But here, In Ephesians 4, beginning in verse 7, it is Jesus, it is the Son, who is the giver. He is the giver and the dispenser of all gifts. That's why Paul says, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Uh, the little Greek word translated there is but. It's a, it's a mile. It's not a strong adversative. It's a mild adversative. You could even sometimes translate it as and. But it is an indication that Paul is making a slight change in direction. So as we were reminded when we read those first six verses, especially verses four through six, with the seven ones that are the foundation, the unity of the Trinity is the foundation of the unity of the body of christ and what paul is doing is he's making a slight shift from unity to diversity the unity amidst the diversity in the same way there is one god there is a unified godhead there is even a diversity of course within the trinity within the triune godhead of father son and spirit or in the order in which paul gives here in four spirit the son and the father so also there is unity amidst diversity in the body of Christ. This is, there is no problem of the one and the many. There is the beauty and the glory and the wonder of the one and the many, in the economy of God. But it says, "But to each one, so he turns from the all to the each one, to the individual. And he says grace was given it's interesting the context of the grace here is not so much the grace that saves but the grace that enables the saved to serve this grace the grace that saves the grace that saves us from the fetters and the bondage of sin is exactly the same for all this second kind of grace this is not a second blessing don't misunderstand that it's the same grace it's just if it's almost like two sides of the same coin the the first side of that grace is the grace that's saved is exactly the same for all we are saved by faith alone in christ alone all of us all of us are saved by the regenerating power of the holy spirit we are all elected and justified in exactly the same way but this second dimension this other side of grace is unique And it is unique to each and every person. The first grace works in election and justification. This second grace works in our sanctification. The first is a saving grace. The second is a serving grace. We all, on the one hand, are all made alive in Christ in exactly the same way. And we are each given, each uniquely giving spiritual giftedness from Christ. Christ for His glory, for our joy, and for the blessing and the building up of the body of Christ. And this is not even something new as we read and study through Ephesians. This is the kind of aspect of grace that Paul talked about back in chapter 3 in verses 2, 7, and 8, where three times you see grace there, the grace that God had given Paul. And the grace there is the same kind of second aspect of grace in Paul's life, not the grace that saved him per se, but the grace that enabled him to do the unique ministry and gifted him to do that which God had called him to do as a new creature in Christ Jesus. Chapter three, verse two, Paul said, you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you. And then look at verse seven, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. Verse 8, to me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles and the the unfathomable riches of Christ. So beloved, in the same way as God gave Paul a unique giftedness and a unique calling, so also you and I have a unique giftedness, each and every one of us. We're all, in a sense, many have said before, spiritual snowflakes not in terms of our fragility, but in terms of the uniqueness. Uh, People say that there are no two snowflakes exactly alike. So also there are no two each ones in the body of Christ exactly the same. Beloved, each one of us is uniquely given gifts for all, for God's glory and for the blessing of his body. But he continues, this is according to the measure of Christ's gift, according to the metron. The, the Greek word metron is the word from which we get our words metric. Uh, you know, it means measure, proportion, or limit. And the idea here is that the sovereign Lord, the Son, the second member of the Trinity, directs the quantity, the quality, and even the shape of the giftedness or the gift. Jesus parcels out what is necessary for the good of the body, for the blessing and the empowerment of the individual Christian. And this is not like like passing out Halloween candy, where you have one big bowl and there's a bunch of grubby little paws, you're reaching in to try to grab whatever we can. No, Jesus uniquely, deliberately, purposefully, individually, parcels out precisely what you need and what I need in terms of the call in terms of the task in terms of the responsibility and in terms of the power to do just that now when we talk about gifts uh, one can try to think about well what and many times people will say well I don't know what gift I have or what gift I don't have Uh, we we can look at the lists of gifts we'll find them in Romans 12 in 1 Corinthians 12 here in Ephesians 4, we'll get one list in verse 11 when we get there. And then also in First Peter 4. And what you do is when you combine all the gifts that are listed in those chapters, there could be some overlap and maybe different names for the same kind of gift. There's somewhere around 19 or 20 gifts. But I think when we look at the New Testament in its entirety, and even at these four sections, we understand that that isn't even necessarily an exhaustive list of all the gifts. And we understand that we all have, as created by God, different abilities, different opportunities. And even in the spiritual, mystical, wonderful dimension of the supernatural giftedness that God gives us, so also the same way. Some may have greater measures of mercy. Some may have greater measures of teaching. Some may have greater measures of evangelism. But even with the three examples that I just pulled out, we understand that we ought not say, well, I don't have the gift of mercy, so I'm not going to be merciful. Or, I don't have the gift of teaching, so I'm going to keep my mouth closed all the time and never tell anyone, my children, my neighbor, about the glory and the wonder and the forgiveness of sin that's available in Christ. No, we are all charged in all of these areas. Just we are gifted at different levels in all of these. So, to help us understand and extending this further, we ought not find some kind of list of gifts and then go through it ourselves or take some kind of aptitude test or even ask people, say, Well, you know, check I've got this one, I've got that one, I don't have that one. That's not how we are to look at it. The way we are to look at it is all the virtues, all the gifts that we do have listed in these areas. It's like God even continuing the illustration and analogy that. Paul uses here in Ephesians, God is the master artist. He's the master composer. And you can imagine as a master artist, he has a palette. And in the palette, he's got the little wells of all these different areas of gifting. And he paints each and every one of us, you as a unique blend, a unique masterpiece with different measures of those beautiful colors, some more dynamic, vibrant colors, some more muted But God is the one that is doing this for his glory. Beloved, and you become an individually perfect blend of God's gifts from his hand to you. The unique blend God has painted, the individual masterpiece that is you. One masterpiece. Again, when we think of the masterpiece of the one body of Christ in chapter three, And in the first six verses here in chapter four, his magnum opus, that's the one. But now there are many masterpieces, each one an individual masterpiece. Each one, and it kind of violates the Latin phrase, but there are many magnum opus C, or opus I, I'm not sure how you would pluralize that. That's the diversity, that is the many, the one in the many. Beloved, practically what it means for us in the body of Christ, is since this is, and, and by the way, I think you may have heard me say the word giftedness. I think that's a great word to kind of capture with the dynamic here. Uh, of those four chapters that I talked about where you see gifts, in 1 Peter 4, it's a singular gift. And I think the idea there is the giftedness, the blend of all of these elements that God has painted you as. That's what I mean when I talk about. Giftedness. Now, since this is, back here in Ephesians 4, 7, since this is being measured out by Jesus, we don't need to worry about how much we get of that gift or this gift. And we certainly don't need to worry about how much he gets or she gets or how much they get. Because we understand that Jesus gives the exact amount necessary of what you need and what I need to accomplish what our gift is and what our gift requires. Same thing with the power. One man said that God never gives December grace in June. Similarly he said God doesn't supply strength to climb a mountain when his children are walking on flat land. God will give you just what you need when you need it. I said this maybe once or twice from the pulpit and certainly in offline. I remember one time uh, several years ago before God really began to bless us uh, just with prosperity, even at the material level in our church. And it was kind of a lean time in the early years. And I remember my brother, Elder Chairman Tim, was talking about, and I just loved it. He said, we have, we're, we're trying to figure out how to manage the amount that God had given us. And I remember Tim said, we have down to the exact penny." that God intended for us. And if you know Tim, that's my best (laughs) illustration. But I I love that. That struck in my heart because it was so rich and true. Beloved, in the same way, in terms of the giftedness, God gives you down to the last iota, until a drop of what you and I need. And again, to each one of us, to each one of us, that means none of us, that means you are, none of us are redundant, superfluous, or useless. Um, One more element is the value of the gift is not determined by the gift. The value of your giftedness is determined by your use of it, how you appropriate it, the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. And we understand that your giftedness, my giftedness from the Lord may languish, If it's unused, if it's unexercised, muscles, when we don't use our muscles, they atrophy. So also the gift can do the same. It can become close to extinction. That's why, for example, Paul tells his young protege Timothy from his second Roman imprisonment when Paul was waiting for execution. 2 Timothy 1 verse 6, Paul instructed Timothy, fan into flame the gift of God which is in you. Beloved, fan into flame the giftedness that God has put into you. Seek how you can do it and how you can exercise it more. Professional athletes, fitness people, don't just rest in what they're doing, they try to find ways to excel yet more physically. So, also, us as Christians need to always be seeking to excel yet more in how we can better exercise and strengthen our giftedness and fan the flames. We are Stewards, not owners. Uh, even the verse that I mentioned before, 1 Peter 4 or 10, where he talks about the giftedness, this is what Peter brings out in terms of the stewardship aspect of it. This is what the apostle Peter wrote. As each one has received a special gift. I would like the translation, a special giftedness. Employ it in serving one another. That, that's the, the one another aspect. It's not for our own uh, it is for the blessing and encouragement One of other employed in serving one another As good stewards Of the manifold grace Of God Beloved the body of Christ This body of Christ is needful Of your giftedness And the church is impoverished When we don't exercise Our giftedness J.C. Ryle the great pastor Had these choice words he said Quote Our gifts our influence, our knowledge, our health, our strength, our time, our senses, our reason, our intellect, our memory, our affections, our privileges. So he starts with the supernatural gifts and then even gets to the natural talents, our privileges as members of Christ's church, our advantages as possessors of the Bible, all our talents. Whence came these things? What hand bestowed them? Why are we what we are? Why are we not the worms that crawl on the earth? Pastor Ryle answered, he said, there's only one answer to these questions. All that we have is a loan from God. We are God's stewards. We are God's debtors. Let this thought sink deeply into our hearts, end quote. Beloved, the lordship of Christ is measured in your life by your stewardship of your gifts of your giftedness and each of us will one day give an account of our stewardship to the lord and what words do we long to hear well done good and faithful servant good and faithful slave enter into the joy of your master which christ had prepared beforehand for us so jesus is the giver secondly he is the victor and what happens here is Similar to back in chapter 3 when Paul began a prayer in verse 1 and then he went on this holy rabbit trail and he had this divine interruption of theology from when he started his prayer in verse 1 then he picked it up in verse 14. Same thing here, we have a divine interruption. Paul again interrupts himself going from the speaking of the gifts in verse 7 and then starting to elucidate what the gifts are in verse 11, with this kind of parenthetical statement, insertion that we see in verses 8 through 10. And verse 8 is where we move from Christ as the giver to Christ as the victor. He is the one who gives, and he is the one who conquers. And this is the great drama of salvation with Jesus as the triumphant general, as the mighty victor over the forces of darkness. Verse 8, therefore it says... When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. What Paul is doing here is Paul is quoting from Psalm 68, verse 18. And it's not an absolute direct quote, but it's a very close quote. Psalm 68, verse 18. uh, There David wrote this. You ascended on high. So David is speaking to God himself, to Yahweh, to the Lord. You ascended on high. You led captives, your captives. You received gifts among men, even among the rebellious also, so that the Lord God may dwell there on the ascended hill. That's why I read from Psalm 24 in our public scripture reading before. Who may ascend to the hill, to the holy hill? God himself. And there's even the great exhortation in Psalm 24, for the we people to help prepare the way for him, to open the doors for the Holy One to enter into his city. John Calvin called this psalm, Psalm 68, a victory ode. Uh, When you read that there in verse 18, and especially when you read the first 17 verses, it's a rehearsal of different parts of the history of israel where god delivered the nation he overthrew israel's enemies and he led here in verse 18 of chapter of psalm 68 he's leading the vanquished enemies through the public streets in a triumphal parade that's the backdrop that is what the person that had psalm 68 then the original audience and even uh, now some thousand years later or so would understand from this Uh, This is the same type of kind of military victory language that the prophet Isaiah used as well. Isaiah 49, turn there if you would for a moment. Isaiah 29, let your eyes go to verses 24 through 26. There, some couple few hundred years after David, God says to the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 49 and verse 24, can the prey be taken from the mighty man? Or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? Surely thus says the Lord. Even the captives of the mighty man will be taken away and the prey of the tyrant will be rescued. For I will contend with the one who contends with you and I will save your sons. And I will feed your oppressors with their own flesh. And they will become drunk with their own blood as with sweet wine. And all flesh will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Now, that's Old Testament, a couple Old Testament passages. And we have this passage here in Ephesians 4, verse 8. Paul also used similar language when he wrote to the church in Colossae. Colossians 2, verse 15 Paul said, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. God the Father disarmed the spiritual forces of darkness, made a public display of them, even at Calvary, having triumphed over them through Jesus Christ. Now, what would having that understanding of the Old Testament student? and even here, the readers of Paul, what would the Ephesian audience write at that particular point in time when Paul wrote this letter to the church, what would they have in mind with this kind of language? Turn now to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. In 2 Corinthians 2, Paul brings out in powerful language what was a significant seminal event that might be witnessed by a person in the greco-roman world at that time maybe once in a lifetime it was called the triumph and it was this mighty grand parade given to a victorious roman general maybe once in a lifetime of people in 2 corinthians 2 verses 12 and 13 paul is paul's just in a, a state of discouragement now when i came to troas for the gospel of christ and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in His triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are saved perishing to the one, an aroma of death to death, to the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? Paul there to the church in Corinth is pointing to the same kind of event as he is writing to the church in Ephesus, this great triumph. It was a vast parade celebrating the victory of a Roman general. And there were massive requirements for a Roman general to even have one of these triumphs put in his honor. He had to win against a foreign nation. Civil wars and rebellions didn't qualify because they didn't bring spoils or slaves to the public treasure. 5,000 or more of the enemy forces had to be defeated in the war. There had to be a positive extension of the Roman Empire rather than just a successful defense or a regaining of previous territory as to the parade they would throw open the gates of rome and all the houses would be decorated the people would climb to the tops of their rooftops and they would line the streets all in holiday attire flowers and incense everywhere they littered the street with flowers incense there were priests and the parade would enter through a special gate in rome that was opened only for a triumph and was closed after the ceremony the parade would proceed along the path covered uh, with flowers to the Temple of Jupiter. In the parade, the first group that would come would be the people carrying the banners. Uh, then there would come a body of trumpeteers and musicians sounding for the music. Dancers carrying flags drawn with scenes of the war and the victory would follow after that. And then they would have the wagons of gold and the captured spoils that would come after the dancers and then finally the leaders of the enemy the vanquished leaders the generals of the vanquished army followed by the soldiers of lesser rank all bound in chains would come following after that then finally the victorious general would come he would enter on a golden chariot led by four milk white white horses he would be wearing a purple tunic embroidered with palms under a purple toga lined with gold and silver and embroidered with stars and pictures of events of the war with a bejeweled golden crown on his head and then after the victorious general would come the general's army and they would come marching in order with spears and shields carrying praises to the general this is the imagery that the apostle paul is having in his mind because he knows that would be in the mind of the ephesian believers Beloved, that is what he is talking about here, the victorious parade of Christ. And we are in that parade. We are behind him. We are in the Lord's army. Um, one note here, you'll, you may have noticed there is one, there's a couple changes. The, one of the significant changes between Psalm 68, verse 18, and Ephesians 4, 8, is that in Psalm 68, 18, the Lord receives the gifts. When Paul brings it out here in Ephesians 4, the Lord gives the gifts. Now, this change is not a concern because what Paul is describing here is this one action of receiving and giving and that was the type, even when in that triumph, when the Roman general, when, when they would bring the booty and the spoils, it wasn't just for the coffers of the emperor and the soldier, uh, the uh, general, that would also be distributed to the people of Rome as well, and we've seen this kind of example, for example, in Genesis 14, when Abram defeated Cher Lerimor, one of the generals of that first world war in Genesis 14, Abram took the spoils, and then he gave the spoils and distributed. He gave some back to Lot to replace what had been taken from Lot. He gave some as an offering to Melchizedek, and he gave some to the other generals or the other leaders in that world war that were on his side. David, in 1 Samuel 30, received the spoils in order to give it. The Lord Jesus, also receives and gives in one sense in one act in acts 2 verse 33 you read the words from luke about jesus having been exalted to the right hand of god and having received from the father the promise of the holy spirit he has poured forth this which you both see and hear so beloved back here in ephesians chapter 4 Again, Paul is emphasizing the one great action of the giver, of the conqueror, of the receiving and the giving. And I like what John Calvin had to say about this. He had these good words, quote, "...the mighty victories which God wrought in Israel were noble triumphs, but the noblest triumph which God ever gained was when Christ, after subduing sin, conquering death, and putting Satan to flight, rose majestically to heaven so that he might exercise his glorious reign over the church beloved that is part of and, and by the way the language there he's talking about again the ascension the ascension of christ in luke 24 the ascension of christ in acts chapter one the very same ascension that we've already been introduced to or seen again in the earlier parts of Ephesians in Psalm 68 verse 18 speaking to God he said you ascended on high here in Ephesians Paul says when he ascended on high there, the psalmist David was looking forward in a sense although he may not knew it to the ascension Paul's looking back on this side of the cross and the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension and we remember that Jesus carried his humanity into heaven Wonder of wonders, there is a human heart in heaven beating with a human heartbeat. Jesus is a sitting ruler and a faithful intercessor. Jesus joined our humanity to himself forever, so that all the redeemed, each one of Romans, or excuse me, of Ephesians 4, or 7, will be carried and travel into God's presence as passengers in Christ. And for example, this is what Paul says here in Ephesians, back in chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, if you want to look there. Ephesians 2, 4 through 6. God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And, here we go, verse 6. And raised us up with Him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Beloved, he is the conqueror. He has triumphed, he has ascended, and he disperses. He distributes his gifts according to his will. And it's kind of interesting, you think about it, in our culture, we give gifts on Christmas. We find eggs on Easter. Here, Jesus gives gifts on Ascension Day. Just something to think about in this great drama of salvation so he is the giver he is the victor he is the one who gives he is the one who conquers and he is lastly the filler he is the one who fills he is the one who fills the entire universe with his glory with the gospel with the joy of the saints and the defeat of the enemies he is the one who fills and here in the new american standard you can see the print parenthetical statement even with the parentheses around verses 9 through 10. Now what we see here in verses 9 and 10 in this parenthetical injection by the apostle Paul is we see humiliation and exaltation and we see his ultimate purpose. First his humiliation and exaltation verse 9 and open parentheses. Now this expression he ascended. What does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth. And what Paul is doing here is Paul is offering this parenthetical explanation to expand and to explain on David's intent. Remember, any that we go to the Old Testament, we need to understand that an Old Testament passage must stand on its own. In other words, it was written for the original audience. Now, to be sure, under the superintending power of the Holy Spirit, sometimes New Testament authors would add a second meaning or they would expand or make an application to the Old Testament passage, but it had to stand on its own. And so what Paul is doing here is he's giving, in this case, because it's in the pages of scripture, this is a divine commentary and explanation of David's Psalm in Psalm sixty-eight, and what would David think of when he's talking about the lowest parts of the earth? Well, to an Israelite, to an Old Testament Israelite, to David, the lowest parts of the earth is Sheol. It's the grave, and what he's bringing out here is, and this is all in the same way that Paul talks about the humiliation of the Son and. Uh, Philippians 2 which feeds into the exaltation of the son in Philippians 2 same thing here humiliation and exaltation what Paul is saying here is he went from exaltation from heaven all the way down to the earth to earth itself and even into the grave because he was killed from exaltation to, humil- hu- to uh, humiliation and then back to exaltation he descended from the glories of heaven to the shame and suffering of earth That's why, for example, John 3.13, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, even the son of man. And it's interesting, the Greek here can also be understood that when it's talking about the lowest part of the earth, it could be appositional to earth. It could be just saying to the lowest part, comma, the earth. In fact, that's how the English Standard Version translates it in the ESV Ephesians 4.8 reads, had also descended into the lower regions, comma, the earth. So there is exaltation to humiliation. It was humiliation for the second member of the Trinity to even live in the sin-stained world. And he was murdered, he was executed, and he did go into the grave, but he rose again in victory. Well, Verse 10, he continues, and by the way, some of you, if you have 1 Peter 3 verse 18 in your mind, uh, I'd be happy to engage with you about that, and when I do go through 1 Peter, I'll be happy to exposit, and we'll preach on that as well. Uh, That's not precisely what he is talking about here in my estimation, but I'd love to have fellowship if you wish. In any event, verse 10, he continues, he who descended is himself also he who ascended, Far above all the heavens, which, by the way, the superlative language here even helps us understand. I mean, it's the highest height. What is there above heaven? There's nothing above heaven. It is the highest honor, the greatest glory imaginable from the lowest depths to the highest heights. And in verse 10, the universal authority and unparalleled honor that belongs to the sun just jumps from the pages. And when we consider this, what does it mean to you and me being in Christ, to you as one of the each ones? What does it mean? It's the good news of the gospel, which is the message that Jesus came, walked, died, rose from the grave to overthrow the grave, to overthrow Sheol, to defeat sin and Satan, disease and even death itself this bodily death and the second death that awaits those who die in sin unforgiven by God second Corinthians eight verse nine you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich yet for your sake he became poor so that through his poverty you might become rich that's the humiliation and exaltation, finally we come to his ultimate purpose. So that purpose statement, he might fill all things. I love what the commentator Barclay said. He said this, quote, The ascension of Jesus did not mean a Christ-deserted world. It meant a Christ-filled world. End quote. It meant... This is me now. It meant a Christ-filled universe so that he might fill all things. If Jesus were still here on earth in his human body, physically, he would only be close to a few of his disciples at any given time. But the ascension, beloved, and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, because of that, by virtue of that, he is near to all his disciples all the time. Christ departed from us. Christ departed from you physically, metaphorically speaking, 2,000 years ago, so that you could be nearer to him. He departed from us so that he could be nearer to us. And this also is something that Paul even covered at some level earlier in the letter. Chapter 3, Ephesians, verses 16 and 17. Look at them. He would grant you According, this is in his prayer, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. Look at verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. It all ties together. It's all part of the eternal plan of God of Christ as the one who gives, Christ as the one who conquers, and Christ as the one who fills all in all. Beloved, there are all kinds of, you can think of the subject of church growth. I even made reference earlier to times before financially where it was leaner and and, uh, just how God has been blessing us so wonderfully these last several years. You all know, I hope you never get tired of me saying, always, 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 the emphasis will always be at Santan Bible Church on the spiritual growth. And we praise God when he adds numerical growth be- and even financial growth because that represents ministry and souls and, and opportunities. And when you think of church growth, when you hear that phrase in the evangelical world, they're talking about numbers and they're talking about finances. They're not talking sadly about the spiritual growth. And there are all kinds of manuals and marketing companies and methods and schemes just endlessly add nauseum. Beloved, the best church growth manual in the universe is the book of Ephesians. And that is precisely what God is talking about here, and we'll even pick up when we go through verses 11 through 16. We understand that the goal is corporate transformation, and the goal is corporeal transformation, body building, the one and the many. And in the same way, beloved, if you're Uh, mother if you're a father you don't see your children as one kind of amorphous mass of children you see each of your children as individuals you love each of your children individually for their strength and for their weaknesses beloved in the same way God doesn't see humanity as one amorphous mass he sees you and me as individuals God has formed, molded, painted, composed your spiritual DNA and fitted you perfectly into if this is your church if you're not here visiting fit, fitted you perfectly into this local body of Christ. Martin Lloyd Jones said, I love it. The special glory of the unity is that it is a unity in diversity. A unity that comprehends variation and variability, end quote. Beloved, unity is not a loss of personal identity. It's not a colorless, drab uniformity. We've not merged into a solid and undifferentiated mass. We are not all mass-produced in some kind of celestial factory. And unity is the prerequisite for usefulness, beloved. Diversity is the lifeblood of usefulness may we excel yet more. And then Psalm 68, verse 19, the next verse after the one that Paul quotes, blessed be the Lord who daily bears our burden, the God who is our salvation. Please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We thank you for the power of your word. We praise you and thank you, Lord, for the deep truths, the deep doctrines, and how relevant, always, and applicable, and demanding, and commanding, and burdening, and freeing and emancipating is your word in our lives we praise you and thank you lord god for the work you're doing in each and every one of us we praise you and thank you lord god for the work you have done are doing and will do here at santan bible church we praise you and thank you god that all our brothers and sisters around the world in whatever church they may find themselves if they are new creatures in christ Jesus, if they are bought with your imperishable blood, we are all together. We are unified for your glory, for our eternal joy, and to provide a witness to a lost and dying world. It is for your glory and honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray and that we sing. Amen.